Welcome back, everybody. I got to be around uh, Mr. Anonymous, and uh, he made his decision. And it's incredible because I just wish I could be around that kind of excitement and, uh, I guess, enthusiasm with youth and um, the fun that these people have in the early part of their career. So let's get to it. Uh, welcome back, and I have a distinguished guest, and um, he's been on before. You may have uh, recognized uh, the fact that he's a true academic expert and has that touch of private experience, so he's seen both worlds, and both worlds can be dramatically different, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about private practice uh, versus the academic and the um, more institutionalized practice in medicine. Uh, what it is, where it's going, and what to expect. Also, the little nuances, because they both have a very interesting uh, kind of perspective on patient care, not necessarily on diminishing quality, but uh, sometimes access and sometimes um, availability of consultants and the like. So uh, let me introduce you to uh, a pretty good guy. Uh, Tell us who you are. Uh, Hello. My name is Mark Boswell. Mark Boswell is um, uh, in a fairly new position, and where's that at? I'm at the University of Toledo, and I'm, new, I'm the new program director for pain medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology. That's a that's a really good program, and um, you're ironically replaced somebody that, uh, that was a very high quality academic uh, that went into private practice. And tell me some of the processes you think that he was thinking. Well, first of all, being a program director for eight years is a, a, is a high accomplishment, and I have to hand it to him for sticking that out. And he left for private practice, and he's going to have a very good practice where, he's, where he is now. And that opened up an opportunity for me to uh, get back into academics. Now, I had been in academics my entire life. I was a chair. I retired from the University of Louisville, had a good time there for seven years. Uh, but I felt it was time to step down as a chair. I wanted to go back into private practice and get back into pain medicine again. As an academic administrator, it's hard to actually keep up with academics unless you're in the clinic every day, and it's hard to do that if you're running a department. So I had a great opportunity, went down to Austin, had a wonderful practice opportunity down there, and I was just settled in the, for about six months, and the position opened up at Toledo. So I went ahead and uh, went back to Toledo to take over the practice. But in the process of being in private practice, I noticed some things that I actually had not anticipated. I think that would, if not if not a barrier to care, certainly a barrier to management. And that really revolved around being in private practice, not within a major healthcare system. Well, I've been in private practice. I came from an academic institution. I came from Yale in my residency, and um, I specialized years in chronic pain management. It was a rare thing back then to do chronic pain management, so I'm an old, I'm an old dog. But I can tell you, when I went into private practice, which is um, <clears throat> where I have been for a couple of decades, it was a distinctively different environment. So 
we've been through managed care. We've been through all the uh, speed bumps of uh, uh, the evolution of uh, Medicare to uh, quality care uh, measures and the development of specialized programs. So I can see the, the huge distinction, the desire to be an academic, to be, I guess, on the cutting edge, the cusp, but private practice is nice, too. I can tell you, and this is something very important that everybody understands, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with money. It has everything to do with what you want to do. Uh, Mark, tell us your credentials, because um, you are a breed designed to be an academic. Well, that's probably true. I really liked medical school. <laughs> the best thing I liked, the thing I liked the best about medical school was the classwork, the classroom, and the teachers. Uh, I, I really couldn't see doing being a student for a living, although I suppose I've ended up in some way being a student in an academic center, that is, uh, getting an MBA or a PhD. But not everybody wants to do that, and it's important to figure that out early on so you're happy where you settle. Yeah, MD, PhD, that uh, rings a, a, a big bell. And uh, you have a strong pharmacology background. And what we do in pain medicine is we're clinical pharmacologists. Um, and we, in this opioid crisis, try to minimize escalation of controlled substances by offering other options to care. And that kind of evolves us into kind of the descriptors that uh, we were talking about what it is with barriers in private versus academia, particularly with decision-making on the doctor's end and the barriers to perform what we need to do. Right. So first of all, let's mention the things that are similar between the two. Clearly, production is important in a private practice setting. If you want, to me, if you want the salary that you anticipate in a private practice setting, Clearly, uh, depending on the payer mix, production is important, and that may require seeing a patient every 10 minutes or every 15 minutes. Uh, production is also important now, in and as it is in private practice, it's also important in academic practice. So you're getting evaluated and assessed on RV, work RVUs. What's an RVU? An RVU is a relative value unit. Let's put a stop on that. Back on. So work RVU is just the RVU, the work uh, component associated with doing the procedure. It, it isn't related to the practice expense or to the malpractice expense. So you can, you can compare a work product, production across uh, different settings. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just a wildly technical arena we're playing in now that uh, sometimes is uh, beyond the physician's desire of understanding because we want to take care of people. And so I want to take care of a patient. And I want to do it uh, with a pathway that I have chosen based on what I think is going to be best clinical outcome. What are some of the barriers in private practice versus academia to follow those pathways? In terms of Improving clinical outcome. Yeah, and just being able to do it. And we can talk interventional procedures all the way to referrals to psychiatry. Oh, my gosh, get that covered. And uh, other consultants. For talking, when, when we're talking about interventional pain management, I think 
the private practice and the academic practice are very similar for the routine diagnoses, uh, radiculopathy, uh, spinal stenosis, facet pain, you do the same procedures. The problem, I think, occurs when you get into a more complicated patient. For example, I was referred a patient fairly advanced with fairly advanced pancreatic cancer and was failing opioids, was, was on a fairly large dose of OxyContin, although we weren't fully convinced that the OxyContin or the controlled release oxycodone wouldn't help, but I really thought he needed a celiac plexus block, a neurolytic. But that's not something I wanted to do in the clinic. I needed a CT scanner where we could do this under image guidance. So I needed a neuroradiologist or somebody who was comfortable working in the hospital setting to do this. That's where I ran into problems. I was not affiliated with a large healthcare system, so I had no way of figuring out how to find a consultant to to do this for me. Um, and calling the hospital number just got me back to the operator and phone mail. Calling a physician office, a referring office, got me back to phone mail. Uh, I, the longest I spent on the phone waiting to get a, somebody to talk to in neuroradiology or interventional radiology was uh, 45 minutes. Yeah. So I never did get a hold of anybody. Yeah. Now, if if this had been in a university setting, I just would have walked down to radiology and talked to somebody, say, what can we do? Yeah, that's what I love about universities. I uh, was affiliated with a very good hospital system, a very good organization, and um, we were um, kind of a tribe. And um, we could, of course, refer out outside of the hospital system we had, we could, of course can do that we had some autonomy but i always felt a sixth sense that you want to refer in and so there was no pressure but uh i think in the academic setting uh you're all in the same boat rowing the same direction isn't that right i think so in any case, what I learned was that you can make the private practice setting work, but you have to get out of your comfort zone and go talk to people that you don't know and make contacts and relationships with colleagues, with potential colleagues in the private or in the siloed um, healthcare system that you may not be a member of. Mm-hmm. And that's just going to take some time. You really picked a good example. Um, when we do a celiac plexus block and you start talking about neurolytics, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is pancreatic cancer, not pancreatitis necessarily where and my patient may be an alcoholic and what you're doing is you're taking away uh, the pain and they just feel an uninhibited desire to drink, but you, know, you want to help the patient either way. So I was always in, in private practice perplexed what I should do. Yeah, I could take him to the hospital and do the block. Or I could send him to radiology and they could do a CT. And in my career, it's gone from just doing it in the hospital under fluoro, bad fluoro, to evolving to CT. And that's something in the university setting we didn't necessarily have in the private setting. Complete access to big technology and, and dedicated, experienced people that can do those procedures by referral. Is that about right? That's exactly right. There's more to it than that, though. 
And if you're going to do a neurolytic block, for example, a neurolytic celiac plexus block, you need to know what the anatomy is and decide how much distortion there is, say, with the cancer and whether the mediastinum is involved. And when you put contrast in, you need to see where it goes. If contrast slides up the mediastinum, you don't want to put alcohol in, you could end up with a mediastinitis. What I found also was uh, doing celiac plexus blocks under fluoro, uh, under fluoro didn't allow me to see that kind of anatomy. Under CT, you put a little bit of air in, and you, and you can see it works very well as contrast, and it doesn't obstruct the the view when you do put in a little actual radiopaque contrast. You actually don't really need to use the contrast. You put the air in, you know where things are going, and then you can put in the uh, local anesthetic and the neurolytic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, if you need to find somebody in a different specialty who's an expert or somebody who's an interventionalist, such as an uh, a radio, uh, an interventionalist in uh, radiology, you need to find out who that person is, and it's difficult if you're not part of the medical system. You can't log on to the computer and connect with other people. Yeah, uh, like Google. Um, so, okay, now let's just kind of figure it out. If if we could bullet point, I'll take the private practice side. You give me the contrast academic And then let's do kind of a hybrid because we've both kind of been around both. I think, uh, as a bullet, the perceived ideal of private practice is autonomy, that you can correct your schedule. You aren't based on productivity as much, although I think that's not true. In private practice, um, you have to to keep the lights on. Access to care is sometimes a little early, a little easier because there's less clutter. Uh, sometimes we can just work somebody in. Um, the downside is pre-authorization. The downside is um, we don't have the protections of a university. We don't have um, layers, uh, and it's an onion skin, of uh, folks that make sure that we're doing everything um, uh, within uh, clinical norms, um, we sometimes uh, go a little outside of the box, uh, off-label and the like. That's discouraging university. Uh, I miss the residents. I miss the excitement of academia, the research and cutting edge. Your turn. Well, I agree with that. Uh, one of the things that I like about private practice is the ability to get cases done and put them on. Uh, there's a lot more autonomy in the case, in in what you can be credentialed in. In academic practice, there's a student to talk to, usually a medical student or resident, which keeps you on your toes. That uh, teaching is time consuming and can slow down your production, obviously. But that's a part of academic life that kind of keeps you moving forward. <laughs> Keeps you young. As we're getting a little older, I can tell you um, we are seeing new challenges, MIPS, MAPRA. We're seeing quality assurance measures um, put on in the private sector that are mucking it up. What are you doing at the university? Universities are multi-specialty groups, so the outcomes that are measured are different than they would be in a single-specialty private practice. And the outcome studies, uh, measures that have to be reported to the federal government uh, or CMS are different, and they're determined 
by the multi-specialty group and administration. Do you feel compliance um, pushes a little more, or do you feel like somebody else is doing compliance measures? Compliance as in proper coding and billing? Yeah. Oh, they're adding that in, in academic practice as well. Yeah. In private practice, it can be fairly devastating. You know, say you you hiccup on, on coding, you get an audit, which we always get audits. And next thing you know, it's, it's a challenge to uh, return to normalcy after you've been uh, through a tough audit. And that can be financial, that can be time. And, it, and as far as resources go, we don't have the resources of a university to sometimes survive that. Well, I guess that's true also. Having worked in three academic uh, medical centers with, uh, affiliated with universities, an audit can be bad news for the university. So if one department is subject to an audit, and then CMS can go in and audit the entire institution, all specialties. And then they're looking for problems. And the expenses can be devastating. Yeah. The, the fines. Yeah. I guess it's uh, pretty much the same uh, in uh, private practice as well. What else uh, do you want to add as we close out? In both situations, academic and private practice, I mean, the, really the patient does come first and has to be the, the center of your attention, even if you're teaching. So you have to figure out how to. But the diff- there's a difference between academic and private practice. In private practice, you're not, you don't have a student anymore or a learner that uh, needs to do the procedure with you. So you don't have to explain or apologize for having a learner working with you. In private, in academic pra- unlike private practice, in academic practice, you may have a resident or a fellow, and the patient wants to know what that person is going to be doing. So you need to let the patient understand and provide appropriate informed consent of the participation of a learner. That's true. And if you do not have a resident uh, with you or a fellow, um, you're, you're kind of the lightning rod. And dealing with controlled substances nowadays, we get into some sporty uh, little conversations with patients and uh, the patient uh, it sometimes looks at you as a one-way street. I can complain about you. You can't complain about me. Don't you talk about me. That's a HIPAA violation. They get online, and sometimes they're empowered, and they feel like they can bully a single uh, appearing standing private, pack, uh, pr- private practice practitioner. Does that happen in a big university? Oh, Yeah. People go online and they can talk about you. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, like I've always said, I think if you're a, a pain physician or a pain practice and you get lousy online reviews, you're probably doing it right um, <laughs> because uh, most of them are retaliatory and uh, they didn't get what they want; they got what they needed. But patient comes first. Well, I think that's true, and the common denominator amongst all those complaints often is the request or requirement or anticipation of an opioid or other controlled substance. And with the guidelines out now and the pressures we're getting from around those guidelines, be careful what you ask for, uh, benzodiazepines, uh, which were part of American life um, 
as I say, look to your left, look to your right. When you're driving down the highway, both of them are on benzodiazepines probably, at least in my neck of the woods. But mix that with opioids, and you can have an eight times higher risk of a bad outcome, and it's on you. Do you feel that in academia? Yes, but the academic medical centers have taken charge, and they are reducing the ability to prescribe large doses of opioids. That's good to hear. We could do better in the private sector. Well, hey, I guess we've got to get back to the lab. Um, any, any parting comments? Try to enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I have to tell you, um, this is a job. And um, you want to do as best as you can for your patient and do a good job. But remember, it's a job. Go home, pet your dog when you get home, enjoy your family, leave the bad where you work, let it roll off your shoulder, and enjoy life. It's pretty short. Let's not make it shorter. Okay? All right. Thanks. Appreciate you. Thank you.